Welcome to the Defence Forces podcast brought to you by the Defence Forces Public Relations Branch. Hello and welcome to the Irish Defence Forces podcast. My name is Captain Kean Clancy and today we're going to be speaking to Captain Eugene Mohan about the use of helicopters in the Defence Forces from military operations with the Army and Naval Service to the Emergency Air Medical Service. So thanks for coming on Eugene, much appreciated. No problem, thanks for having me Kean. Um, so as I always kind of do, what, what I'm going to do just to refresh my own memory as much as for any other reasons, just to go through what we're going to talk about. So we're going to have a quick breakdown. We're going to hear about your own background and like what interested you in joining the Air Corps in the first place. And then we're going to talk a bit about helicopters and the Defence Forces, kind of the early origins and what helicopter platforms we operate today. And then the roles of the heli in the Defence Forces. We can talk a bit about working with the Army and the Naval Service bit about our aid to the civil authority operations and things like um, aerial firefighting and, and assisting civil authorities and then we're going to talk a bit about the emergency air medical service but first of all um, have you how long have you been in the air corps i joined the air corps in 2011 and started my cadetship then uh, i got commissioned then 2014 valentine's day so <laughs> <laughs> so it was a good day uh, and since that then i've been uh, posted into the number three operations wing in the air corps which is uh, the unit that uh, carries carries out all helicopter operations. Okay, right. And was there, did you always want to be a, a pilot, or what? What was it? I know, having spoken to Niall Dungan a few weeks ago about the aircraft cadetship, you kind of get a choice towards in the training within within reason of what you'd like to fly. Was it always helicopters, or? Yeah, helicopters were. I suppose the, the aircraft itself is very interesting in that it's you know one of those things that you can land it anywhere and take off from anywhere. Um, and the engineering behind it and how it actually stays in the air was always very interesting. So yeah, being, being a pilot was always interesting to me, but also the type of operations that helicopters are involved in was something that I found very appealing because there's such a variety of, of operations that, that a helicopter can do. Okay. And well, they're very appealing for, uh, I suppose, myself. The sheer, sort of, there's a certain amount of amazement to see something like helicopter flying because it's so... You know, it's almost incongruous. You know, this thing is swirling around, around the plane. Yeah, that's it. Like, and with a helicopter compared to, I suppose, an air, an airplane, there's so many moving parts in a helicopter between the engines up into the rotor head system and to the, the rotor blades that are spinning around quite fast. It's a, uh, it's an inter- interesting piece of engineering. There is a certain amount, as we as we discussed before, that like there there is a there is a fairly long period of training after your cadetship to qualify you to fly to fly a helicopter, a conversion course over from say the more conventional fixed wing flying you would have done before. Yeah, so after we after we completed cadetship, cadetships can vary in, in, in time, but every pilot in the Air Corps will train on the Pilatus PC-9. So I know uh, Captain Niall Dungan uh, mentioned uh, the Air Corps cadetship yeah. previously. So that's every every pilot will fly that aircraft first. And once you get commissioned and get your wings and you're qualified uh, pilot, you will then have the choice. Uh, and sometimes you may not have the choice depending on, on where the vacancies are in the Air Corps, whether you either stay fixed wing or you can move into... Uh, helicopters. I was lucky enough that uh, I got to pick uh, helis and, and I was lucky enough that the vacancies were there and, and that's where I went in. So I started my HCC after uh, I finished the cadetship and the HCC stands for your helicopter conversion course. That's flying the 135 helicopter. So Which is the smaller one for, for anybody? Yeah, it's a smaller helicopter. It's a single pilot operation so one pilot can fly the EC135, or it has skids, it doesn't have wheels, um, and it has a, 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 it's just a smaller footprint of an aircraft. Yeah. And that's where we'd start our, our, our training on helis. Uh, you start off uh, with just learning how to do the basics, so that simple as trying to hold a hover. That can be one of the most challenging things when you move from an air, airplane 
onto a helicopter. It's actually just figuring out how to hover a helicopter. Once you master that, then it's on to different disciplines such as straight and level, climbing, descending, and, and starting at the basics, moving forward then into some of the other operational roles and operational disciplines that we do. We also train for them in the helicopter yeah. uh, conversion course. And like just approximately how long is the, is the helicopter conversion course? Just roughly. I know that it's dependent a bit on say, conditions for flying and things, but... Yeah, so it, it depends. Uh, it depends on aircraft availability and weather and a few other variables that can change and that we have no control over. On average, you're, you're talking in the region of maybe six months uh, to eight months uh, for a helicopter conversion course. Everything from the basics of actually flying the aircraft to the operational roles and some of those operational roles may be attaching loads to the bottom of the aircraft and lifting different loads It'd be simulated winching or, or actual winching air gunnery troop transport firefighting and lots of other different roles a lot, a lot of other different roles a lot of them we're mm. going to go into a little bit later yeah. as we move on in the yeah. podcast but helicopters in in the defense forces and in the irish air corps like you, you mentioned that it's been going on for quite some time the, the air corps were the first in the state to operate helicopters and that was back in the 60s when they operated the alouettes they were involved in many different roles supporting the army but also in search and rescue. We've moved forward in terms of our aerial platforms and, and helicopters. We're now operating the AW139 uh, aircraft, which is Augusta Weston 139. Uh, it's a medium lift helicopter, weighs about six and a half tons, and it takes two pilots to fly it. Uh, we also have the uh, EC135s, which are smaller helicopters that we spoke about. That's a single pilot operation, but generally for training, we would have two pilots in the front, the instructor and the student. Uh, and then for certain operations, we may have a second pilot on the AC-135. But they're the two aircraft that we're operating at the minute. Yeah. Uh, and they're quite modern in terms of their cockpit and their avionics. They've uh, what's called a glass cockpit. It's all, all different screens. Um, and we can bring up different displays and with lots of different information. So, so they're quite advanced uh, aircraft and, and quite fast, actually, as well. So, What kind of speed are we looking at for, say, for example, the large one, the AW139? Or which one is, which one is quicker? The 139 is a lot, is a lot quicker. 135 is, is a bit slower. But in terms of top-end speed on the 139, you're looking at 167 knots, uh, which is, is it at its fastest speed. Yeah. Um, so in, in rough figures, in range, uh, 200 miles an hour. Um, so it's it's quite fast and the other thing that you have to bear in mind is that generally we go in a straight line there's no bends or roads that we have to follow but if we're going in a straight line and the weather conditions are good um, we can get there pretty quickly yeah. um, so so yeah they're, they're, they're a fast aircraft and, and they're very capable and what kind of a range for like a full say like a full tank fuel are we talking for say the state 139 which, which we will talk about later on with regard to say EAS if you have to go a long distance what kind of how far can it go before it needs to refuel? 139 can take about three hours worth of fuel, uh, give or take. Again, it depends on the conditions on the day. If you've um, certain, if you're flying at certain speeds, you might burn through fuel quicker. But yeah, it's about about uh, about three hours worth of fuel. Okay. So about 1.3 tons of fuel in, in total wow. we can carry in the aircraft. Okay, and so, that's obviously in addition to and then you have equipment and you have people in the in the aircraft and then any loads that you need to need to lift. Yeah, exactly. So we, we'd have two pilots up the front and uh, a crewman in the back of the aircraft. And that would kind of be the basic configuration for a 139 helicopter. So the two pilots, people always ask the question, why do we need two pilots in the front of, a, of, of the helicopter? And that's because the 139 has a lot of different systems. And some of those systems can be quite complicated in terms of the avionics and you know the, the different radios that we have on board because we have numerous radios uh, for talking to different uh, people as well as air traffic control. So it can get quite busy in the cockpit. And yeah. then if you throw in 
bad weather into the mix, you know, you need someone to help out with the navigation uh, as well. So two pilots is there to manage the workload and divide up the different tasks between one, one person flying, one person uh, operating the systems. Uh, and then they can swap over and, and, and take turns flying, etc. So the crewman in the back then, he's, he's, our, he's the, the person that helps to guide us into some of those tight landing spots. Depending on the type of operation we're doing, we can land the aircraft in, in quite small spaces. And it's the crewman that opens the door, the side of the helicopter leans out and he, he watches our tail also, but he helps to direct us into those landing sites. Okay. We'll be talking later on, say, about the kind of operation, the teamwork operation inside, inside in, uh, a heli for any number of roles that we talk about but obviously you can, you can see that that importance of teamwork there already like you know you it's not only working with the aircraft you're also working with the other two people that are in in the aircraft with you the big thing with heli operations is communication and teamwork and they're very very important because everybody has a role to play mm-hmm. uh, and unless we're operating as part of a team we're not going to be able to fulfill the mission so create a, a course called crm crew resource management every year in the air corps and in that then it tells us all about um, how to communicate effectively, but also how to work together, uh, leadership, teamwork, all those different things come into it. So it's really, really important. And, and some of the stuff that we're going to chat about later on in terms of firefighting and EAS, uh, you can see why teamwork is very important. We talked about like the AW1 and, and, and the kind of capabilities it has, but what kind of, what kind of roles in the modern defense forces do we have for helicopters? So supporting the Army is, is an important role for, for the Air Corps and uh, in particular helis and there's a number of different uh, capabilities and and things that we we can do troop transport is a big one we can insert and extract troops as required or as requested Uh, so they can be into different areas it could be up into the mountains that we can deliver troops um, or we can take them from different barracks etc so um and that's with like that's with both landing the aircraft you can also do there's there's like a fast roping element as well yeah, so uh, it, it depends on, on the, the situation, but sometimes uh, we would have uh, uh, troops that can fast rope from the aircraft, so sliding down a rope uh, into different uh, locations, um, and also the likes of abseiling and para-ops as well. They're all insertion methods that, yeah. that we would help with in, in the helis. So troop transports, in, in terms of the numbers that we can put into the back of a, an AW139, you can take about 12 uh, troops. Then it depends on the kit that they're carrying. Sometimes we could take a little bit less if they're carrying a lot of extra weight in terms of their backpacks. The 135 can do the same sort of roles and same sort of capabilities, but generally it's just smaller kind of yeah. sizes, so less people, less uh, backpacks, etc. I've been into the back of, of both, and like yeah, the 135 is a, is a kind of much sort of a smaller sort of affair. Like, isn't it? It's, it's what, what kind of capacity did you say the 135? might have in the back is it like six or something or is it? yeah it's it, it generally about five seats and then uh, we, we could have the crewman um, to floor strap so about five four or five is, is kind of what, what we would tend to take in, in troop um, troop transport configuration and the 135 some of the other stuff then the 139 can do and, and the 135 uh, it can also provide air gunnery so we can put on a general purpose machine gun onto the side uh, of the 139s which is, is, is quite interesting and uh, it's um, always dynamic and uh, good flying to be involved in we also have a sniper platform that we can we can operate from the aircraft and we spoke earlier about kind of cargo lift like as in there must be an element to that with regard to supporting the army or the naval service as well the aircraft can can carry lots of different loads sometimes we put those loads inside the aircraft so in a way you can bolt bits on and take bits off the aircraft and change the configuration in the cockpit and uh, we can carry loads internally as well as externally and the external loads we can carry a lot, lot heavier weight. So some of the stuff that we do at the Army, we'd be carrying uh, the 105 uh, gun for the artillery, 
but also the kind the likes of the the engineers have a, a particular specialized type of bridge platform that we can carry in different sections um as well as sometimes we carry backpacks and different loads uh, that are that are set up in, in cargo bags and um, cargo nets so yeah there's a big variety of loads that we can carry and, and how we can package them and how we, we can lift them it's always uh, it's always good fun as well doing that type of flying and what kind of a what kind of a tonnage lift are we sort of talking about that uh that a 139 would be able to pull it depends so if we're carrying very heavy loads such as the 105 which is about 1.5 ton i think we may have to take less fuel so i know we mentioned earlier that it can take 139 can take about 1.3 ton of fuel yeah but we take less if we're carrying heavy weights on the outside of the aircraft so it obviously will affect the range so you so exactly yeah as, so, as a commander employing a 139 to lift something somewhere you have to be aware of all these payloads and things yeah so we kind of weigh it up and even with the firefighting you know the bambi buckets that we would chat about later we can they're about 1.3 ton about 1300 liters of water so also there's a kind of surveillance and recce role that can be done as well from time to time um we would have a request to uh, carry out uh, reconnaissance or recce's um or, or different surveillance and that can be for so, sorry surveillance uh, and that can be for different courses and training um and that's uh, another military role that that we would we would carry out for for the army it's good because it can have different types of flying, different profiles, so whether we're high or low or doing kind of low-level flying or tactical-type flying. I mean, the kind of scenarios that we'd be talking about here, I, I, I was mentioning before, use of fire support team commander for the artillery on board a, on board a 139, when it's like, like if you were firing, like uh, we spoke about the shoot that they did out, out in West Cork off the coast. Yeah, and the Naval Service actually, and that's something that we can do, we can watch the fall of shots. So the Naval Service have, have, have requested us for, for numerous um, different things as well. Uh, but one of those was to the, the new uh, ships that they got and the new guns to to help with uh, calibrating or zeroing, zeroing uh, those weapon systems. So one of the roles that we had to do was maintain a hover downrange outside the arcs of fire, basically video record or record the fall of shots, so where the actual rounds were landing in relation to the target. And that was interesting flying because we're maybe 16, 17 kilometres away from the ship. It's yeah. firing at a target, tiny little target out in the sea. And... Uh, we're watching that target um, or the round uh, impacting the water close to that target. So that's a, that's another interesting role that, that we have carried out before. Um, some of the stuff then that we would have put the Naval Service or that we'd complete with the Naval Service, but like I said, heli-casting. So I know the previous podcast, uh, one of the military divers was on um, and, and he mentioned heli-casting and that's uh, another insertion method of troops. So what we do is we get low to the water, slow down the aircraft, and uh, the divers in the back would jump into the water um, from a slow uh, forward hover. Yeah, and I've seen I've seen some really good images of that. And they did they, they go in, and then their equipment is also dropped in as well. Yeah, sometimes they'll have the equipment attached, and sometimes they'll, they'll go in after them. But yeah, they, I think it's it's meant to be quite a quite a thrill when they're jumping out of the aircraft into the water. And uh, yes, yeah, so makes makes for uh, makes for good flying as well in terms of getting down low and getting all the spray from the water up around the aircraft that can circulate in the net. Um, so it's it's quite good. So there's a lot, like from there you can see, like there's an awful lot of kind of logistics roles and and diff- different things that that an aircraft will offer commanders on the ground for both the naval service and, and the army and, and, and other services. And you also work to a certain extent from aid to civil power with with Garda as well. Yeah, that's something that we would provide from time to time. Um, different roles or different requests would come in, um, and depending on what the the situation is or what the type of request is, uh, we would provide that that capability to the aid to the civil power and Garda Shikana. So. Again, some of the some of the capabilities that we've spoke about: insertion, extraction, or uh, the likes of reconnaissance. Yeah, or even or possibly cargo. If these options are open to the to, to the guards, well, if they if they request them. 
Yes. And right. so, like, we, so that's aid to the civil power, and obviously we have then we move on, like, aid to the civil authority as well. So in the event of, say, emergency situations or kind of natural disasters or things, um, the aircraft can provide a capability to, like, civil authorities and things like county councils and stuff as well. Yeah, and that's that's one of the roles that, that we would carry out. Um, some of the stuff that we've done in the past for local authorities would be the likes of uh, cargo slinging different loads, such as bales of straw, bales of hay and fodder into... Um, marine animals say after flooding yeah. so we've carried that out before um then around the atlone area so, so when um, roads are not when roads aren't available because of flooding or because of a natural disaster then the sky is fairly clear like yeah exactly the, what we found is that sometimes with the flooding there may be animals on the land and the animals are marooned uh, and the farmers can't get them in off the land uh, and we've been requested previously to uh, help drop in fodder and feed onto these animals um so that's quite interesting. And some of the stuff we've done previously with the OPW, could be the likes of Skelligs, uh, where we've dropped out some building materials and repair works uh, after storms for different locations that are, I suppose, remote or secluded. A helicopter's a great uh, platform to drop in these materials or anything that's required. It could be even personnel from the local authority or from the OPW um, that we'd have out and, and lift in. There's assisting the civil authority during, say, flooding, but also one of the more visible parts of the agency civil authority operations is area firefighting. Area firefighting has been a big part, I suppose, recently with all this dry weather that we're having. Uh, the ground is quite dry and there has been a number of fires around the country. Uh, and every year, actually, we've, we've been quite busy in, in, in recent years in terms of aerial firefighting. Mm-hmm. What do we do or how does it work? Aerial firefighting, there's a couple of different ways we can do it, but uh, I suppose one of the more practical ways or more, one of the more efficient ways would be to have two aircraft deploy for any type of fire. So we'd have the 135 aircraft or helicopter with a, a deploy is along with a, a 139, AW139 helicopter. The 135 then we would uh, tend to land into the scene uh, or land into the fire and they get a fire officer on board or uh, one of obviously not into the fire itself but like in nearby like <laughs> yeah. yeah tender road <laughs> <laughs> somewhere somewhere safe uh, we land in and we get the uh, fire officer on board or one of the team members from the ground yeah. get them into the aircraft into the 135 and I suppose then they act like the command and control and what they can do then is coordinate the whole thing uh, and help to uh, I suppose direct the 139 uh, aircraft into a position. Spoke about the 139 earlier and how it's two pilots and a crewman in the back, uh, and they would be in comms then with the 135, they would help to direct them onto the fire. Uh, one of the big things that we look for uh, as well is a water source that is close by to the fire. The whole idea of aerial firefighting is that if we have a water source that's close, in terms of maybe one or two minutes flight time, um, it means that we can drop a lot of water very quickly on the fire. It's, no, it's not really uh, ideal if we have to travel. Uh, long distances between each drop if we can get that down to a couple of minutes that's what really makes a big impact on a fire um, so we can drop water rapidly and we can drop a lot of it quickly over a short period of time bambi bucket is 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 what we use it's a big red bucket that's attached uh, to the belly of the aircraft uh, that can hold up to 1300 liters of water it's kind of made of a, a rubber pilots in the front they would have a control uh, or a button in the front that they can press uh, on their cyclic that would allow them to drop all the water out of the, the bucket. Yeah. Um, so the crewman in the back, so we spoke about him earlier, he's, he's the guy that's happened to direct us in over the, the water source. So that can be the sea, it could be a river, it could be a lake, 
um, or it could be a man-made hole in the ground that the fire service have dug for us and yeah. filled with water. But you, but you, you mentioned when you were chatting about this, which I, I've never heard yeah. before, and I kind of found fascinating that. But it, it makes it makes sense. I mean, if the fire brigade have access to large amounts of water, and then you know, just happen. But I would have never thought of that before. Yes. So some of the locations that that we would find the fires is is that there would be no water source close by. Um, Probably one of the reasons why. Like the ground is so dry. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And what we found works well is the uh, fire service would dig a hole, uh, fill it with one of the tankers, and then we're able to uh, replenish uh, and use that as a water source to fight the fire. And and it's worked quite well. We actually used it recently in Enfield. So we land in, the crewman will direct us in over this uh, the water source, we'll fill the Bambi bucket, and then the crewman will take us in over the fire. Aerial firefighting is dangerous flying. Uh, we're in low, um, we're in risk of hitting obstacles or wires or different things that that we mightn't see straight away. Uh, and there's also the Bambi bucket hanging from the aircraft. Other things to consider then is the actual fire itself in terms of the smoke. And if you think about the engines on board the aircraft, well, they need oxygen to burn and uh, to burn the fuel. So if we fly through thick, dense smoke, well, there's potential there that you could uh, flame out your engines on, on the helicopter. So helicopter um, firefighting operations are particularly dangerous and the crews need high skill levels uh, yeah. in order to complete this task. But again, it's very rewarding flying. Uh, and and you can really have an impact into the operation and, and to the mission into the firefighting. Yeah, so. and we've seen like we've seen like on stuff we would put on social media recently, like the shots and the the short videos from actually the crewman inside the one two nine as the water's dropped, and you can really see the impact of that amount of water on, on a fire. And also, you wouldn't think that a fire is so big, but like you can you can really see the sheer extent of it from the air. And I think we would have seen images from recent operations, say in Enfield and stuff, that look really really big. Yeah, Enfield was a bad fire in terms of the, the height of the flames. And it's only when you get down low into the, into the, to the fire that you can actually see the extent. And some of those flames could, could be 50 to 100 feet high. So they're, so they're quite intense, especially when they get into the likes of forestry. Uh, the fires can take off. Uh, and then added with a little bit of wind and the dry weather conditions that we're having, some of those fires can get quite big. Over the last couple of months alone, We've been in Enfield, we've been in Kildare, we've been in uh, Connemara and Donegal and even up in County Loud where we've been fighting fires. One Loud in particular, I think the aircraft were there for about three days fighting fires. And again, it's not about just putting out fires, we're also protecting people's properties yeah. that are in the vicinity of um, of these fires. Um, so, so it is quite important and people sorry, in, in the unit do get a, a real sense of satisfaction out of this type of flying. Yeah, and it's, it goes back to what we talked about, about earlier about kind of teamwork as well and that like in this instance like you've got the teamwork in the aircraft but you're also working with the fire controller in a different aircraft who's directing you to where you need to actually where the water needs to go. That teamwork none of this will happen. It's really, really important uh, and the communication, good communication, it's really, really important with this. You can see sometimes we, we wouldn't have the availability of a 135 helicopter to help guide us in. Not a showstopper, we can we can still complete firefighting, but it does help. Um, yeah. It helps to make it a bit more uh, efficient um, and we can coordinate and have it's that kind accurate, of... Yeah. yeah. As I said, it's one of the more visible parts of the, of the helicopter, heli operation, especially during the summer, is the is the aerial firefighting. But another very visible part of, of the operations with, with, with helicopters from um, the perspective of the Defence Forces is the Emergency Air Medical Service. As we discussed before, we actually started recording the podcast. The Air Corps was involved in an awful lot of kind of air ambulance and area based kind of ambulance operations. But when we talk about what we're talking about now, what, we want to go into what we're talking about now with regard to the Heli Emergency Air Medical Service. So EES stands for Emergency Air Medical Service, and, and that's really our 999 type uh, medical emergencies. Um, and that aircraft is based on loan. But we also operate other air ambulance duties and rosters in, in the Air Corps, uh, and that can be for fixed wing aircraft. Uh, and also some of the other helicopters 
um, that are in Baldonnell. And they're more kind of an inter-hospital type air ambulance duty. Yeah. So that may be for the likes of um, patient transfers from different hospitals uh, or organ harvesting as requested by the ambulance service. Yeah. EAS is more like rapid response, uh, 999 calls, so the likes of heart attacks, car crashes, all these things, all these types of uh, accidents. Um, where we need to respond quickly. So go through for us, for us like the process of, so you're on duty as an as a EAS helicopter pilot or indeed as, as a crewman or as, or as a HC paramedic or something like that. So what happens when you, when you get a call? So when we get a call in EAS, it's very much a team event. We know exactly what each person is doing and we all have really specific roles. So again, it's an AW139 helicopter, so two pilots up the front. We have a crewman in the back who's uh, an Air Corps crewman, uh, medically trained, so he's either an EMT or a paramedic. Yeah. And then we also have a HSE advanced paramedic from the National Ambulance Service in the back of the aircraft. We have two technicians then that are also based um, with us for EAS and, and they complete daily inspections of the aircraft as well as any technical or maintenance issues that we have on the detachment in Atlone. Atlone is where EAS is based. And it was picked because it's the geographical center of the country. And if you were to draw rings around that lawn, it would show a response time to different areas and we can get there quite quickly. Yeah. Um, so that lawn is a really good uh, location for that. When a call comes in, so how does it happen? Uh, the advanced paramedic will get a phone call uh, from the National Ambulance uh, Control Center, uh, which is based in Dublin. And they'll give details such as uh, the location, and the type of incident. Once we get that call, we'll have a quick look at the weather to make sure that it's good or not good. And if we accept the call, the pilot will accept it. And then the co-pilot will remain in the ops room in Atlone with the advanced paramedic and the, uh, the crewman. The pilot or the P1 will walk to the aircraft. He'll start up the aircraft while the advanced paramedic is still on the phone with the P2 or the co-pilot. And they are then planning the route, planning the navigation and planning the landing site. So we'll get a latitude and longitude or we'll get an air code uh, of where the call is located. Uh, the crewman then will go to the map on the wall and he'll work out rough headings and rough timings while we, uh, the co-pilot and the advanced paramedic, work out a slightly more uh, accurate landing site using software that we have available to us for that. Right. So once that's completed, pilot or the P1 should have the aircraft started up and the techs would also uh, help in that. We should be all in the aircraft and in the air within that kind of seven or eight minutes time uh, routing to the, to the scene. Uh, so it's quite quick and it's quite rapid. Uh, it means that we must kind of stay in the vicinity of the building uh, in order to respond quickly, that we can't leave, we can't, uh, can't go outside or, or, or leave the, the ops room. Uh, generally we stay there and uh, we'd, we'd have our meals there, etc. So yeah. we're always ready to respond, always quickly, uh, to aim to get into the air within that kind of six, seven minutes. Okay, well, and you've already mentioned like who, who who's in the back of the heli and, and who we have with you. So you have quite a good deal of medical capability in it, in it as well between your paramedic and your crewman and your advanced paramedic. Yeah, exactly. The, the, the level of care that the patient would get in the back is quite high. In terms of medical status, they call it ALS, Advanced Life Support. And that's where the advanced paramedic, he can administer lots of different medications and, and provide that support along with the, the Air Corps crewman. Um, that alone is, is quite, quite a high level of care. So even if we're going to some of the remote parts in the country, where, whether it's Clifton or Letterflack or Cleggan, all these different areas that are, that are quite remote, um, sometimes we can get there quite, quite ahead of the, of the ambulance that's on the road. Yeah. So we're able to provide that ALS, advanced life support, to the patient quickly but we're also able then to pick that patient and take them to a definitive care centre. So a definitive care centre as in one of the hospitals that's uh, 
that's appropriate for the type of patient that it's we have. Best suited, which was what we said, you, you were saying when we discussed, which I think is interesting, is because, as we discussed earlier, an aircraft can go in a straight line from A to B at a very high speed. It's, it's not about going to the place that's nearest to you. Yeah, sometimes we would go to, say, a hospital that specialises in a type of injury or a type of, uh, say, Beaumont in Dublin specialises with head injuries, and, and, you know, we may bypass a, a hospital to go directly to that definitive yeah. care. That's on the direction of the advanced paramedic in the back of the aircraft. He can, he can tell us or ask us to go to certain hospitals uh, to get that definitive level of care. So overall, the level of care that the patient gets is, is quite high. Um, and the service has been a massive success in terms of a uh, number of lives saved. We've lifted thousands of patients from every county in the country. And it's been the service has been up and running uh, the last over eight years now. And it's been very, very successful. Sometimes people see the big green aircraft and, and ask us what we're doing. Um, it's when we get chatting to people and we meet them at, at scenes that we explain to them, this is the emergency aeromedical service. We're based in that loan and that uh, we're here in conjunction with the HSC and, and the Defence Forces. Yeah, and I imagine you must get a great deal of satisfaction out of doing that job as in bringing people to a hospital to get kind of care that they that may have resulted in, in loss of life or serious permanent injury if you had not had, if we didn't have the service or that you, had, you hadn't been, been available. For sure, yeah. Some of the cases, like the different types of calls are, are quite interesting. We get a lot of trauma calls, so a lot of farming accidents, a lot of, say, injuries on building sites or industrial sites. Um, but a lot of trauma and a lot of car crashes and any serious call really we tend to be there as well as that we have patients that have had heart attacks and strokes and again it's about getting them to that definitive level of care we can do that quickly doing that quickly as well as bringing the advanced life support in terms of the advanced paramedic to the patient quickly and getting the patient quickly to definitive care the outcomes can be quite good in terms for the patient so some of the feedback that we get from patients from time to time is that it really has made a difference to them and that it saved their lives and that's quite satisfying for the crews and all the people that are involved in EES and in the Air Corps because it's not just about the pilots that are actually flying the helicopter it's about the people that are in the flight training school in Baldonnell that are training the new pilots it's about the instructors in the apprentice school that are training the new technicians um, it's about everybody it's all the support staff and everybody that actually helps to make these operations work because without all of those people in the background providing all the different services and all the different support that aircraft would not operate so we, we need all that support and the ultimate expression of that team team ethos that we've talked about a lot during the podcast Exactly, yeah, and, and that's right across the Defence Forces for all the different types of ops that we do. Without that, a lot of times these things wouldn't happen, so it is really, uh, really, really important. So at the end of that, thanks very much for coming on to the show, Eugene. It's very much appreciated. No problem at all. And like, there's a huge amount of info there, I think, for anybody that has their own academic interest in, in helicopters and the Defence Forces, or indeed for anybody looking to join, so you might get a couple of uh, potential pilots out of it. Yeah, it would be great. We're, we're always looking for people, and anyone that's interested in it, it would uh, be great to have them. Um, so as always, keep an eye on Defence Forces social media and military.ie for further updates on the Irish Defence Forces. Serving members are encouraged to check out the members area of military.ie for updates. Today's episode was produced by Gunnar Porrick Sullivan and Sergeant Paul Keeley of the Defence Forces Audiovisual School. And as always, the Irish Defence Forces podcast will be back soon with another, with another episode. Until then, stay safe. <laughs>